through the dangly woods, the aimless does. A dripping and a dripping goes. His company no beast enjoys. He makes a sort of hopeless noise. Just between a snuffle and a snort, his hair is neither long nor short. His tail gets caught on briars and bushes as through the dark undergrowth he pushes. His ears are big, but not much use. He lives on blackberries and juice, and anything that he can get. His feet are clumsy, wide, and wet, slip-slopping through the bog and heather, all in the wild. And weepy weather. His young are many, and maltreat him. But only hungry creatures eat him. He pokes about in mossy holes, disturbing sleepless mice and moles. What he wants, he never knows. The damp, despised, and aimless doze. What he wants, he never knows. His young are many, and maltreat him. And only the very hungry eat him. <laughs> the aimless, hungry does. His feet are wet, and his eyes are not much use. Ambling through the dark, stygian. Ancient forest. There, you see. You see how easy it is, friend, as you quietly rock to and fro, back and forth, in that ancient crib of eternity. <laughs> back and forth. Watching the skies swing overhead as the cross trees of your tiny frigate cut through the light of the stars, and the pennant flies limply in the soft, fetid jungle air. The pennant that should be proud and bright atop the crow's nest. Oh, oh, woe is me! Woe is the ancient cry of the aimless doze. Woe indeed, snuffling aimlessly, knowing not that which he hunts. <laughs> kind of nice way to get the clean the ashes off the sill, isn't it, Terrence? By the way, before we get too deeply involved in this labyrinthine existence. Uh, do any of you know 
uh, how you get rid of devils? Now, it's just a serious question here. I'm not uh, putting it on because... Uh, <laughs> no, I, I would like to know, uh, you know, when you get possessed of a devil, what do you do about it? I mean, I know how to handle bunions and athlete's foot and bad breath and all that stuff that you see on TV, but there's no commercial. Uh, what secret magic ingredient to take when you want to get rid of a devil? And I'm sure that uh, I'm not the only one who has this problem. So I don't know whether Ann Landers could feel this one. Or uh, Dr. Frank Crane, doesn't he answer medical-type questions in one of the pop-type newspapers? Dear Dr. Crane, I've got this devil, you see, and... <laughs> and don't laugh. Don't laugh. Now, there's not, there's not much to be laughed at when you concern yourself with the little creeping, crawling, sneaky things that are down deep inside. Now, of course, uh, there, there are several ways to look at this situation. I, of course, you have, you've got to, got to understand, I'm sure, that some of us have a sense of the irony of it all, and others don't. Some just go through life, you know, just life is simple, life is sweet, life is making the next payment, life is neat. You know? Hey, that's not bad. <laughs> not bad at all. Not bad, actually, come to think of it. Life is simple, life is neat. Life is making the next payment. Life is sweet. Like one of those non-caloric sweeteners. Very sweet, but no calories. Uh, this, uh, this is possibly one way of looking at life. However, I will say this. There are other ways. Uh, I remember one time, talk about, how, how many of you have seen scenes of true uselessness? How many of you, in your, as you're walking around life, you know, going up and down Sixth Avenue, Scratching around in Trenton, blowing your nose in Hackensack, changing a tire in Darien, you know, just flubbing along, you know. Occasionally see a scene of stark, pristine uselessness. Totally and completely. Men involved in a feckless activity and who know it. Of course, many of us in, in the entertainment world have had this feeling that we're involved in a feckless activity, and we know it. There's not a feck to be had in this whole business. I'm beginning to suspect. And yet, have you noticed that almost everybody in his right mind today, in this day and age, wants to get into showbiz? Some form, some nature. He wants to identify with... You know, you can get little home comic kits now, where you can turn yourself into a comic at home. You know, A little uh, book of one-liners... And uh, kind of a, uh, suggestions on how to costume yourself, whether you're the angry beat-type comic, you know, with the sweater and the vague beard. You can be that kind. Or you can be the Henny Youngman with the stuffed shirt and the phony violin. Uh, home comic kids. Everyone wants to, you know, everyone wants to somehow uh, transcend this uh, mortal sphere that we walk around and we become sort of larger than life. And after all, that's what the theater is, you know. It's to take, uh, well, it's to take uh, people... And kind of, you know, screw the uh, tire pump into their foot somehow and pump them up and then they become Richard III. Or maybe, you know, it's a funny thing, I wonder if Richard III would recognize himself if he came back and saw himself being played by Laurence Olivier. It's curious, you know, I have to bring that up. I'm curious whether or not the, the, the Prince of Denmark, that, that hallowed, haggard prince who questioned it all, I wonder if he could recognize himself if he saw himself being done by Gielgud. I mean, the real thing, you know? 
these, these, these little subtle, uh, little tiny wisps, the little smoky things of desire in the air, want all of us somehow driving, urging to rise above this thing we are with the bad knee, you know, and the tooth that bothers you when the wind hits you at a certain angle, or you drink water that's a little too cold, or your eye waters and gets full of ashes on 6th Avenue. You know, this is something that Richard III doesn't have to deal with, you know. You never see uh, Hamlet in the middle of a soliloquy all of a sudden say, uh-oh, uh-oh, and he's looking around for the facilities. You never see this. He's not bothered by those same problems that all the rest of us are bothered by. Not a bit of it. And, of course, the modern, the, the, the little man of today, he has long since given up being a hero. So he buys heroic things. He buys things which somehow will encompass him and carry him into that great land beyond the barricades. The heroic thing now is probably the only, probably as close as any of us can get to heroes, buy a heroic car. You know, a car that has a raging Mustang on the hood. Something, you know, this is, you know, you're a 97 pound weakling and you're going to be a 97 pound weakling. And you're going to die a 97 pound weakling, but you can drive to your grave in a Mustang. Raging, roaring, blood red Mustang. You know, they, they've even changed the names of the colors. You know, they, they, there was a time when, when colors in cars, when you went to buy a car, they called it something like, uh, geranium red. You know. Now, of course, it's gore red. Uh, yeah, I'm serious, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> gore red all the way down. And uh, these little brass rings that we're trying to grab, you know, here we are, you know, you grab one, grab another one, hope for the best. And you know, when a guy goes into the army, this is going to be an army story here, friends, he, he sees himself as part of a vast panoply uh, of, of marching men, marching to deal with and dispose of the evil that lies on the earth like a scourge. And uh, especially during wartime, you know, you go into the army, and, boy, you hear the sound of marching feet, clump, 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 L-A-V. Oh, no, that's another show. That's another show. <laughs> I'll award you the brass figlegi with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me what show began that way. L-A-V-A-L. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. This is Wadney Laws. That was another one, too. This man is dangerous. Keep an eye out for him. Contact your local authorities. He has an anchor tattooed on his right bicep and could well be armed. Boom, boom, boom. Well, that was another scene and another time. But I, uh, you know, when you go into you go into a thing like a, a vast enterprise, you always see yourself as somehow clinging to the yardarm. I'm sure that every one of us, if we think of ourselves as going west in the 1830s, you know, the Bonanza Syndrome or, or the Wagon Train Syndrome, we see ourselves somehow as one of the outrigger riders, one of the scouts, riding way out there, you know, <laughs> and uh, reporting back to the main train that the, that the Indians are now in the hills and you're going to stand them off yourself. We see this. You never see yourself as the little short fat guy in the last wagon whose only job is to fix the horseshoes. And they don't even give you a gun to shoot. You don't see yourself in that scene. And yet, there were little fat guys who sat in the back window, back wagon there all the way under the barrels of, of flour and nails and stuff. And their job was to carve tent pegs. 
or their job was just to sit, just to sit and hold the back of the wagon down so it didn't bump so much in the front. That was about the end of it. Now, now we, we, throughout all of history, there have been these solitary marchers, which, of course, is most of us, the solitary marchers. I'm curious whether Wyatt Earp would recognize himself if he came across himself on a TV rerun late some night on Channel Whoopi. Way, way late down there some night. I, I wonder if, a, if an L.A. cop would recognize himself if he saw himself played by a Jack Webb on a fifth rerun on a late, late, late Channel Whoopi production. You know, way down there in the last days of Pompeii, slowly sinking in the West, played by Charlton Heston, Victor Mature. Susan Hayward, of course, has to show up with a bowl of fruit on her head and carrying John the Baptist's skull in one hand and uh, a sword in the other. But this is this is all part of the <laughs> this is all part of the scene. And and uh when you go into when you go into something big, you know, I'm sure that every kid uh, a lot of guys should say, I don't want to get killed you know, they talk about how they're scared to go in the army. Son, you'd be very lucky if you got that close. All I gotta say is about one guy out of a million in the army ever got close enough to get shot at. And, and, and behind that one guy, there were millions of guys doing feckless little jobs, sad, raggle-taggle jobs, very difficult to explain back home why they were there and how it happened. Well, I'm in a company one time, you want to hear about one of the saddest sights I ever saw in, in this whole, this great panoply of the war against against tyranny and Hitler and all the rest of it. And I'm in this company, it's a signal corps company. Now, the Signal Corps encompasses all kinds of things. It encompasses movies. Did you know that? The Signal Corps units uh, are constantly making movies out in Long Island someplace. We just heard a rumor of that. What a great job that would be, you know, to somehow be assigned to a movie unit. That was like Never Never Land. And then there were guys that put up poles. There were other guys that strung wires for miles. There were guys that ran radar sets. And there were guys that operated keys. You know, on Morse code keys. And there were guys who just sat in offices and took one paper off the pile to their left and put it on the pile to their right. And reached over and took another paper off the pile to their left and put it on the pile to their right. And once in a while, off in the distance, a bugle would blow. And he would get up stiffly and go to the mess hall and stuff his face and come back and start taking papers again. Up to the top and down to the bottom, hour after hour. Well, this is not my story tonight. This is not the story, the story of the company clerk, not at all. It's even in a sense a sadder one. I'm in this dynamic, modern, completely electronicized 20th century radar company. Now, you know, a radar company uh, in those days... Oh, by the way, this is uh, Gaunt Rockwell here. And uh, this is your <laughs> whoopee station, WOR, AM and FM, New York. And would you please, if you will... Operator, strike the money button there. Match or an operator? All the way, man. I can see you got the look in the eye. There's only one champagne of bottled beer. All right, let's go, gang. Let's say it out. Flavorful. Miller Highlight. Brewed only in Milwaukee from a century-old recipe, Miller High Life has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. In cans and in the familiar crystal clear bottle, Miller High Life is always sparkling. 
flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller Highlight yourself. Yes, Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. Very good. I can't complain about that, George. You know, uh, uh, you, you've got the picture now. This is a this is a dynamic modern outfit. We have big parabolic reflectors. You know what is it? A parabolic reflector? Oh, it's, you've seen, of course, uh, uh, movies of uh, space uh, exploration. Have you noticed that almost every SF picture these days begins with a shot of a radar tower? You notice that, Matt? Almost every SF picture. And they have a radar tower. I don't know why radar is constantly involved in SF, but nevertheless, this old radar tower. And some of that radar, incidentally, I'll have to add as an addenda here, some of that radar that they show in the SF pictures goes back to the antediluvian days of radar. They must have got it on a, on a surplus deal from a Civil War radar company. I'll tell you, it's really ancient stuff. I saw one the other day. It says dynamic 20th century, 28th century or something. They, he's got, oh, you see this radar going, oh, that was purely a museum piece. It was one of the first they used in the Battle of Britain, you know, back in the days when, when Winnie was a lad. Oh, and the radar's going back and saying, oh, wowie, holy smokes. Well, nevertheless, though, I'm in this dynamic, hard-hitting radar company. We've got little special insignia with lightnings and all that stuff all over, some helmets with lightnings on the side. And Boy, we're really a gung-ho radar outfit. We've got all the equipment set up there, and it's humming, and it's beautiful. You know, it's secret, too. Had a had a had a uh, electrified fence around it. We're training. Everything is going. We're swinging. Right. We're, we're the new dynamic electronic army, men of the future, science, all the rest of it, you know, space. Uh, flying aircraft and the whole scene. We were on to IFF and we had all kinds of little secret numbers uh, that nothing gives you a sense of really being part of the future. Then everything you talk about is just merely numbers, like IFF 697 slash ANJ, that kind of thing. That's the way we described our equipment. Well, we were swinging along there and everything was, you know, just going hunky-dory. By the way, speaking of that, uh, in the next barracks, right down the street from where we were, there was a very famous movie star. And, uh, and oh, I'm not going to tell you who he was. It doesn't make any difference. He was in the next barracks, and he had played in a whole succession of gigantic war epics. And he was always like a colonel, or he was always like, you know, a captain. He was being parachuted into Burma and all that stuff. And now, suddenly, he arrives, and he is a yardbird, raggle-taggle private. And he is two or three barracks down from us. And he cried day after day. He would just sit there and cry because he's in the army. And we'd see him in the PX crying. Oh, his agent is on the phone. You know, all the great deals. He's, oh, he's crying. He tried everything. I think he stuck ice picks into his ears and shot his M1 gun into his foot. He tried everything to get out. <laughs> and sure enough, he made it. And about seven months later, after he got out, we all marched down to the Post Theater to see his latest war epic, where he was a commando. Uh, he was a great commander. He had a helmet, you know, with mud all over the... Well, nevertheless, here we are. We've got this dynamic radar outfit, and that we're men of the future. When suddenly, without any warning, there was a big company area next to us that was not occupied. Another outfit moved in next to us. And they had wagons, you know, they had big prime mover trucks. They had big, dark, green... Uh, personnel carriers. Boy, what a mysterious looking outfit this was. And these guys had, had field jackets with no insignia on them. And we kept looking, wow, 
Holy smokes, what is this? A, some kind of an atom bomb outfit? Some, a very secret outfit? But yet, they had sad looks. Every last one. They did not have the kind of sad look that guys get from just being in the army, but really sad looks. Some kind of strange, mysterious sad look, like they were doomed. Doomed men. And the whole company was just sort of walking around quietly. They would sweep up. You see guys picking up butts. And remember, we were in a restricted, kind of a, a restricted area where you couldn't just go in and, uh, and what are you guys doing? You know, oh, nobody quite did that. And for, for days, the rumors floated around in our company what these guys were up to. Their full complement had not arrived. And then one day, it arrived. A truck arrived with about nine guys riding before it in jeeps and guys coming back of it at a truck. And funny noise it made when it went past our company area. The truck itself made a strange sound. A strange sound, sort of like, ooh, ooh, ooh. There was something in that truck alive. Alive. Get this. It was not a horse. It was not the things you associate with the army, you know. Just something alive in the truck. Big covered truck and it had, it had curtains on the side of it. They pulled into the company area next. We're all curiously watching here. We're dynamic looking guys with our lightnings on our hat, you know. Our big radar set is going, searching the skies for hurtling aircraft. And these guys began to set up a whole row of pens. These sad, silent, lost men. And one by one, out of the trucks, they took Signal Corps pigeons. It was a pigeon company. A pigeon company. Do you have any idea how lost and sad and woe-be-gone a pigeon company is in the middle of electronic wars? with single sideband radio equipment, with walkie-talkies, with all kinds of special long lines, radio transmission stuff going, and the radar going, hey, these guys get these pigeons. <laughs> I'm not inventing it. Pigeons. And, and we couldn't believe it. You know, the rumor immediately, we got a pigeon company next to it. This was like something out of the, you know, it goes back to... Florence Nightingale, you know, the, the War of the Roses. We couldn't, it's like, it's like if a company of knights arrived, you know, guys with maces and they got helmets and big plumes on the top of their head, they arrived. You don't know what to make of this. The pigeon company, what, what, where are they going to use pigeons? And that was the hooker. Nowhere. And these guys knew it. They were in a dead end outfit. They were pigeon men. And, of course, they began to drift into the PX then. We knew that the jig was up. We thought up to this point, you know, they were some kind of an atomic bomb outfit. They're pigeon guys. <laughs> pigeon guys. And, and here they are living cheek by jowl with this, this, this 23rd century radar crowd. Completely in the future. In fact, so much so that hardly anybody in the place knew what the word radar meant in the whole camp. And here we were dynamic, like missile men or something. We'd go down to the old PX, and these guys would sit around. I remember one day sitting there talking to a, a corporal, and he's sitting across from me. We're both having a sandwich, and he's from the other outfit. I says, Pigeon Company, huh? He says, Yep, Pigeon. I'm in a Pigeon Company. He says, You know what I shovel all day long? <laughs> yes, indeed. I guess I do, fella. He says, Well, he says, You know the old expression, uh, chicken? The old army expression? I said, yeah. He says, we don't use it. We got another expression, you know. He says, we don't only have an expression. We got the real thing. 
It's all over there. It's every place there. It's pigeon company. And so night after night, I would go into the pigeon company's area with other dynamic radar guys, and we would go up and down through the cages and look at the pigeons. You know, they had, they had their special pigeons. Some pigeons were ace pigeons. There were like sergeant pigeons, and there were corporal pigeons. They were, yeah, they did. They had rank. They were private pigeons. And each one had a single core ASN number on his, on his little foot, you know. His single, his serial number, you know, like a pigeon number 141722D. And once in a while, there'd be big excitement. A pigeon would go AWOL. They would take them out and they would fly. Yeah, they were always flying the pigeons around. And of course, we were always threatening to shoot them down. With our <laughs> oh, you know, it was one of those sad scenes. And we would watch these pigeons. They were going great, great, like flocks, I guess they call them. Up they would go and all these guys would stand around and they'd drive away. And whatever they did, they, they had maneuvers with the pigeons. I think they'd, they'd drive out into the boondocks and let the pigeons go and then run back and wait for them to come back and cheer when they'd arrive, you know, and all that stuff. And then finally, one day, the word came, the pigeon company was getting shipped. And they were, they were, they were alerted now. It's overseas time. And they were packing their little pigeons into their GI cages, and they were putting their little GI overcoats and their little canteens on, you know, and they were putting their little helmet liners and stuff on the pigeons. And all the pigeon men were walking around in their company area with that stunned look of guys who got, have got the orders, you know, they're going overseas now. And the one thing we could not figure out is where was a pigeon company getting sent? Where would you send a pigeon company? And not only that, they were on a hurry-up alert. There was some fantastic, desperate need for a pigeon company somewhere in the world. <laughs> and these guys are running around and are getting their shots and all. Whoop! In the dead of night, this secret pigeon company took off in a great big airplane and were never seen or heard from again. I still don't know where that pigeon company went. Did they actually use their pigeons? Do you know that there are several Signal Corps pigeon heroes? One pigeon that was shot down in no man's land in World War I and hitchhiked all the way back with his message, ducking from shell hole to shell hole. Yeah, do you know what? There's a famous pigeon that is stuffed. And, and he is, he is stuffed. I'm serious. He's got the Congressional Medal of Honor or something. I don't know. These guys were always talking about great pigeons of the past. Of course, they were involved in pigeons. And they were talking about great pigeons of the past, old Peg Leg Pete. And they had names like that. And, and they had pictures of great pigeons and autographed pictures of pigeons. Sure, they were combat pigeons. Don't laugh. There were pigeons that were also on uh, special detail, OSS pigeons. There were, I'm not exaggerating. Everyone laughs. But this, this pigeon company, to me, was, was one of those sad moments that I've seen in my lifetime of guys who were involved in something that was totally out of keeping with the time in which they lived. No guy getting drafted, I'm sure, from Indianapolis who sees himself going up the beach at Anzio or something could ever possibly conceive of himself with a little broom, you know, with a <laughs> going around. <laughs> How do you explain that back home? How do you tell the chicks at the USO, I'm in the secret company? And, you know, there's a certain aroma about pigeons. There's a certain unmistakable uh, aura that exists around pigeon troops. But these, these funny little holdovers, these backwaters, these backwashers of great historical movements are lost completely, usually, in the histories that are written about those times. I doubt whether there will ever be a combat TV episode about a pigeon company. Be a very, have they done that? Really? You mean pigeons in World War II? Where, where do they use them? Where? 
They did yeah, on combat. They had a pigeon company. Huh? I'll be darned. Well, I'm glad to hear these guys finally got overseas. And got, who got the stripes though? Who got the DFCs and all that? Do they give a pigeon a DFC? Does he get a distinguished flying cross? What does he get? I mean, does a pigeon get flight pay? Does it, uh, you know, it's very difficult. Uh, do you draft pigeons? Does a pigeon, is there a conscientious objector pigeon? I suppose the ones that, the, that took off were. I guess there are still some pigeons hiding in the boondocks out there. They won't come back. You know, they're waiting for the war to be over. You know, they're not, they don't want to get. But you know, uh, uh, speaking of the backwashes of war, a couple of years ago, you know, I've been seeing all these, uh, these, 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 I think in most cases, very badly done, atrocious, uh, a half-hour TV series about the Navy. Boy, there's some terrible stuff on about the Navy on, on TV. It's, it's, if I were in the Navy, I'm telling you, I, there, I, the, you get the feeling that somebody's got to go with a hand grenade and do something on one of those sets just once. These awful things about the waves. Have you seen those? They're really, they're really terrible. Oh, boy. But nevertheless, uh, I had a very strange experience aboard a cruiser a couple of years ago. Uh, by a series of uh, odd circumstances, I found myself aboard a missile cruiser that had been reactivated from World War II. This was a cruiser that was built back in the early days of World War II, had seen a lot of action in all kinds of battles in the Pacific, had been everywhere out there, and finally, after the war, it was brought back and stuck into mothballs. And then, a couple of years ago, they decided to reactivate this cruiser, uh, take her out of mothballs, and put missiles on it, you know, the, the, the terrier missiles and all that, and build her into a modern ship. And I was on the shakedown cruise that left Boston and took off in the dead of night, that hot, steamy, midsummer night. Oh, boy, was it ever hot, and the ship was shaking like mad, and it was kind of smelly, and they, they had just taken it out of mothballs, and had cleaned it all up, and it was sailing down to Guantanamo Bay. Now, aboard this this cruiser, this it bore the name, by the way, that it had borne in World War II. Aboard this cruiser, there were thousands of uh, engineers from the Bureau of Ships, you know, guys with the great big blueprints spread out all over the wall, and they were they were running tests on the on the uh, steering apparatus and on the the uh, the CIC equipment. In other words, they were running all the tests, uh, the special tests that they run on a brand new ship. But yet, it wasn't a new ship. Remember, it was an old ship upon which new superstructures and new equipment had been placed. So we're sailing through the dead of night. We are now off the Virginia coast. Well, it's exciting, though, to be on a ship on a shakedown cruise and nobody knows quite now what it's going to do and you can feel it shaking. The feel of a cruiser at night with a, that hot, steamy water going past. And once in a while you'd see a ship go off the off the starboard bow. We'd just go sailing across in the dark there. And we're all by ourselves accompanied by a destroyer on our way to Guantanamo Bay, and incidentally getting reports that there was a gigantic hurricane also on its way to Guantanamo Bay to meet us there. So we're heading into that night, hot, steamy night. Oh, boy, was it hot. And I'm in the wardroom. I'm sitting there with my T-shirt, sweating. Oh, the, the air conditioning wasn't working, and the ship was... Because uh, you know when all that equipment is going full blast on a ship, a lot of heat is generated especially when they're running it up and running it down and bring, bringing the pressure up to the top and raising it and lowering it. The ship was like a floating inferno. And so we're sitting down there in the wardroom. Now, this was a wardroom that had seen a lot of action in World War II, plenty of action. And now it was being put back into use as a new 
mid-20th century missile cruiser. And I'm sitting there at, at one of the tables in the wardroom, drinking hot coffee, trying to cool off a little bit and eating some ice cream. And this engineer sits opposite me, and he's got blueprints spread out all over the place. Boy, seven yards of blueprints. And he's with another guy, and they're, they're really having trouble. I, said, I can't figure it out, Charlie. This is beyond me. I said, they're going over this thing with fine tooth. They had books. They had spec lab books and the whole scene there, trying to figure out something that was not right on this ship. And here I'm sitting on it. It's in the beginning of a worried, you know, what's the matter, fellas? And I could feel the deck just rattling and shaking under me, and the bulkhead is rattling next to me. The cups are rattling on the rack back, and everything's rattling. I think, maybe, maybe the thing, you know, maybe they don't know how to work it, or something's going to blow up or something. And so I asked one of them, I said, what, <laughs> what's, uh, what's up, fellas? He says, you know, the, the very funny thing, there's a lot of stuff on this ship that does not appear on the diagram of this ship. That's what the, what is up. Literally, there was a lot of stuff on the ship that just didn't appear in the official specifications of the ship itself when she was built, no less. The wiring diagrams and so on. I says, really? He says, yeah, now, now come on, I'll show you. And so, about five minutes later, I am way down in the engine room. Now, have you ever been in the engine room of a cruiser? This is an experience. Or any large warship. It's not quite the same as going to, to the engine room of the Shalom or the engine room of the United States. You know, that's kind of like, uh, oh, wow, you know, I, I, it's like a showroom, these beautiful ocean liners. No, when you're down in the engine room of a ship of the line, that is business. And it is so crowded with guts, you can't turn around. The, the little tiny spaces, the whole crew, there'll be eight guys on duty down there working one piece of equipment, and they're all fitted in a space about a foot and a half square. Heat, smoke, steam, oil, sound, noise, pressure, vibration, it's all... You don't hear a sound. You cannot hear anybody talk. It's just... And they yell... They yell at each other. You never know how they can... They have earphones yelling, and you can't figure out. Well, how, how does anybody know whether there's something extra stuck down there? You know, just chuck a block jam full wires overhead. You see nothing but a tremendous sea, a beehive of cables, pipes, tubes, copper tubing, great uh, asbestos pipes all over, bronze, everything. There must be forty-seven million spigots on a ship. I don't know what happened. I always had the desire to just turn on some, see what had happened. You know, little spigots and valves all over the place. Well, I am being taken down through this engine room, way down in the bowels of the ship, going through this hot, steamy, uh, midsummer sea on its way through the shakedown area of Guantanamo Bay. And the guy says, now look, I'm going to show you this. See, now look, look at this up here now. He says, see? Now, I'm going to show you exactly what I mean. He says, now, here's where we are on the ship. He's got the blueprint. Now, here's where we are on the ship, see? He says, now, here, you see, these are such and such a lines. This is the low-pressure lines. This is one. He says, now, you see, this line here, now, you see this one that's painted white there that runs along. It's all clipped there to the other. That is not on this blueprint. We can't figure out what this one is here. Right, right here. So, see? I said, well, gee, you know, have you tried to tap into it and see where it goes, what happens? He says, there's nothing in it. Nothing going through it. There's nothing going through it. Crying out loud. He says, come here, I'll show you something else. So he takes me all the way back, and we're following this line. It goes through a labyrinthine, all oh, fantastic uh, conglomeration of junk. And we get back into another area down the edge. He says, it disappears there. 
It just goes disappears into the bulkhead. He said, there's a lot of insulation and stuff in there. He said, we'd have to tear out that whole bulkhead to, to trace that. I said, really? Oh, yeah. I see. Whoop, up into the wall. That's it. With a lot of other stuff. Wires, pipes, everything that goes in. See? He says, now, we've traced this. He said, we've, we've tried it electrically. We've tried to trace it. He says, now, there is one other place where it comes out. And we go all the way back, and there's an engine room kind of a... Like a little uh, forecastle in the back, they had a couple of bunks, and he says, "Now it comes out here a little bit." He says, "A couple of valves here, and then it goes back in again." He says, "That's one." He says, "You know there are half a dozen lines like this on this ship." He says, "Now I'm going to show you another one." So we go down to another level, and there's one painted green. We follow the. We have no idea. He says, "Now it looks very." Uh, he says, "Obviously this was put in at the time it was built." He says, "It's it's uh, it's there. You know, it's not just hanging. It's there." Well, that was the mystery aboard the ship. And we sailed another day. And finally we arrived in Guantanamo Bay. And oh, boy, was it hot. The steam was just laying on that tropical climate. You know, you could feel that hot, fetid breath blowing off the end. And it was laying there kind of menacingly. You know, this was, this was uh, at, the, at the peak of Castro's belligerence. And they had these big high wires all around Guantanamo. And off in the distance you could see a few of the... Uh, Castro Cuban soldiers in the jeep driving along a hill observing Guantanamo Bay and looking down with binoculars and you saw a little marine detachment on duty and they had already sent all the all the people back and none of the no wives and the dependents were there and this was this was a peculiar sensation so we're laying there in Guantanamo Bay and off our bow there's a carrier laying off there in the mist and you could feel the pressure from this hurricane building up and everybody's walking around the ship getting ready to go out on the test. And they're still trying to figure this out, but now they've just about forgotten. It's just sort of one of those things, well, you know, maybe the diagrams aren't, uh, aren't real. Maybe the diagrams uh, were not complete, so forth. Well, about noon on one hot, steamy day, aboard the ship came a chief. And this hard-bitten chief was one of these 30-year guys, you know, with stripes all the way up to his elbow and sort of a heavy-looking granite jaw, purple jowls, a real chief, you know, hat on the back of the head. And he comes aboard this ship. Of course, we're talking to him. And it turns out he had been on this ship during World War II and had come aboard her this afternoon because he heard she was in, and he had been on her during the commission ceremonies, the earliest days when the thing had slid down the ways, and he had been with her all through the battles in the Pacific as an EM. He had been a second-class seaman, and then he'd been a, you know, he'd been a, all the way on up to a first, and finally he made chief, and then he was transferred off, and here he was back looking at his old wagon, and it was old, his old ship, and you could see the old tears in the eyes, he's walking back, he says, I'll never forget the time, he says, I George, the kamikaze, we took a kamikaze right there, he says, off Okinawa, right there, he says, you see with those planks, that little roughness there, he says, I'll never forget, she was burning, he said, she burned for over two days right there, took a kamikaze, he says, let me tell you about the time we're down in the mess hall, we're all sitting down in the mess hall. He says, I got up to, to leave the mess hall, and I'm walking on the way back to the bulkhead going up to the O-deck, when all of a sudden he says, boom, something hit me in the back. And he says, I just got one brief glimpse. I turned around, and I saw this airplane come right through the wall there, right through the bulkhead, right into the, right into the mess hall. And he's telling us these stories. Well, I happen to be present. The exec officer says, say, listen, he says, you were aboard the ship. He says, maybe you can tell me something. He says, your engine room, aren't you? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, old pipe fitter. Yep. He says, can you tell us about what this stuff is here? 
says, this was obviously here back in the days of World War II. He's pointing at the piping. It was a kind of a silence, kind of a funny, embarrassed silence. And the chief says, well, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess, Commander, I can tell you what that is. It's really want to know. And the commanders immediately you could see him. Well, what, what's, what's up? You know, what is it? Because the guy's whole air was kind of guilty and sheepish. He said, yeah, yeah, I'd like to know. He said, well, you know, those are awful hot days out there, Pacific. So we were out there an awful long time. And the exec says, what, what, come on, what, what is this stuff? Come on, fellow, what is it? So, well, I'll tell you, he said, uh, we had eight separate stills aboard this ship. And he says, you're looking at the, he, he says, you're looking at the second section still there. The white one was for the second section. He says, now, the third section had a green one over. <laughs> These guys had spent the entire war building an elaborate system of stills into this majestic cruiser that was out there fighting the forces of evil. And to this day, they're still there. And, and the exec says, do they work? He says, do they work? He says, do they work? He says, as a matter of fact, we used to put about four guys ashore with DTs every month. Do they work? He says, they never figured it out. He says, the whole war, they never knew where we were getting it. He says, they had a tight security clamped down on us. He says, they used to frisk us. They'd hit us in the back all the way. They'd x-ray us when we'd come ashore and come back. He says, they'd hit us to make sure the bottles didn't rattle. He says, we'd just come ashore, go back out. Come. He says, we never bought anything ashore. We'd take it out to the natives, in fact. We were selling it ashore. He says, we had good stuff. We had that one there, that one there, over there, made bourbon. Over there, he says, no, that was our gin wine. Over there. He says, now, now down below, he says, have you, have you seen, he says, have you seen our, our, our rye, our whiskey rye life? I'll tell you, it's nice stuff. We used to even age it. He says, I'll tell you, we never, we never drank it when it was a year old, you know. We were out there a long time. <laughs>